everybody. Welcome to the No Name Music Cast. My name's Tim, and this is Joy. And before we get going with the show, I just want to remind all of our listeners about our Facebook page, and it's facebook.com slash no name music cast. That's facebook.com slash no name music cast. We post some links that go along with the episodes, some videos that we find and pictures and other such stuff. So please join us on there. And then if you feel inclined, you want to share the posts or share the page, we would be delighted if you did yes. that. Now, it's Joy's turn to pick the topic this week. Uh, so as always, I don't know what she's going to pick. So, Joy, it is over to you. Okay. So this is kind of a random topic. So the last two um, episodes were very specific band heavy. So we had the Spice Girls, then we have Ben Halen. So I wanted to kind of change it up and give a little bit more variety. So this episode, and Tib, you're going to have to use your creative liberties. I'll coming up with a title. Okay. <laughs> it's literally just about 30 crazy music facts that you didn't really know um, that I thought would spawn some interesting conversation between us. Um, and it's about musicians, you know, but it's going over things people may not have known about them or about music in general. So Tim can um, take away with the title. I'll let him think that through. But for our first music fact, Tim, and I think you've talked about this before, so it made me laugh. What if five country music songs refer to either alcohol um, one in three has tears and one in seven says the word mama. <laughs> Why doesn't that surprise me? I mean, they, they, they always also go on about trucks, dirt roads, um, buying beer in gas stations, um, regional pride. I always think um, when you say that, that dust in the bottle song, <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? Um yeah, or you I start walking my way, I'll start walking yours or whatever. Yeah, I've played Dust in the Bottle. I've played I've played that in bands since I've lived here. Yeah, it's a pretty uh, a pretty popular one in this area, but that's the first that comes to mind when I hear that. The other one that there is, if I had to pick one, and Hannah will appreciate this is a hate. This is throw out to Hannah her hate for country music. Um, if there's one song that I could live and never i absolutely have hated since i was a child it's that song is called butterfly kisses have you ever heard that song i have heard that song oh god i would rather literally stick a pin in my eyeball than have to listen to that <laughs> song on repeat <laughs> it's a very visual statement but it's true and now I, think it's I, I think it's 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 the subject matter and the way and the way the music is done but it's especially when it's a guy singing they have that country music sound to them and it's, mm -hmm. it's sort of men whining sound and this but also add the the topic of that song is kind of whiny too so i think he the singer has a really whiny song and then the song has a really whiny and i heard it so much when i was a kid because of 90s country and i would i'd rather not <laughs> that's all i can say all right so the next one is, and I don't know if you've heard this. This is very interesting to me. The most expensive instrument in the world is called Lady Blunt. Yes, like a blunt. Um, it's a Stradivarius violin. Yeah, Stradivarius. So that, 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 yeah. that apparently is the peak in the world of the violin. Well, Tim knows that, which sold in 20, uh, 2011 for $15.9 million dollars. And that's yeah. the highest grossing instrument that's ever sold. Yeah. Uh, Nigel Kennedy, the violinist Nigel Kennedy, has a Stradivarius. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't know whether it's his or someone has loaned it to him. Because it apparently it's very common that very rich musical instrument collectors who don't play will buy these things as investment pieces. And then they'll loan them to certain people um, like Nigel Kennedy to, who can play them and enjoy them. Because... Any kind of instrument like that, whether it's a guitar, a cello or, or a violin, if mm. the soundboard is not vibrating or allowed to vibrate, the woods, it can go off. It, it, may, it may never sound the same again. So it, it, they really should be played and enjoyed. That's very interesting, though. I mean, that makes sense. I feel like that about instruments, though. Like, I'm the kind of person who feels like I'd rather go to someone who's actually going to play it and enjoy it. Yeah. Are you, are you familiar with the guitar player Joe Bonamassa? Yes. 
So he has a huge vintage guitar collection. One of the things he spends all, nearly all his money on, or actually more, well, he spends a considerable amount of money on buying vintage Gibson, Fender, Gretsch guitars from the from the 50s through to the early 70s, which a lot of them is their golden era. And I mean, mm-hmm. you're talking twenty, thirty, forty thousand dollars $40,000 a piece. I mean, he's got Gibbs, uh, 59 Gibson Les Pauls, which are probably $200,000 each, and he has a number of those. Yeah. But what's good about him is like a lot of vintage guitar collectors are people who are very rich business people, buy them as an investment piece and stick it in a bank and it never sees the light of day. What Joe Bonamassa does is he has these instruments and he tours them and enjoys them and plays them and, and you know, does does everything you're supposed to do with a guitar. See, for me, I feel like the person who made that guitar, the person behind that, I mean, not every, I know not every guitar is handcrafted, obviously, but the person that started that kind of background of that guitar, the company, wherever the roots were, they were right. They were making guitars that they wanted people to play. And so I would kind of, I would like to honor that in a way, um, instead of, and not to say that putting something in a museum is necessarily bad. My preference though would be to go to someone who's going to play it. Sure, absolutely. And I've seen Joe Bonamassa a couple of times. And yeah, he, he, bring, he brings out a 1959 Les Paul, which is not something you typically see because they're, they're so expensive. Yeah. Well, and, and I imagine because they are so expensive, that would be a turnoff for people who buy them to play them because they don't want anything to happen. You know, exactly. Exactly. So I get that. All right. So another one is, did you know Rod Stewart? And this could be a lot of did you know? So if you're playing the bingo card and drinking, I'd suggest don't do it tonight. Um, <laughs> <laughs> because literally that's the whole episode, which was the inspiration behind this episode. I was like, well, we literally spend 90 of the top 90 percent of the time just naming facts anyway. So let's go with it. <laughs> Rod Stewart hosted the largest ever free concert. So. Several free concerts have been reported to have an audience of one million or more, but such numbers tend to be exaggerated. However, according to Genesis World Record book, Rod Stewart on 1993, New Year's Eve, it was a concert. It it was Rio de Janeiro, um, Brazil, remains the most ever attended concert. It had four point two million people who were in attendance of the performance. Um, And then the second most free concert is John, I don't know how to say Gene Michael Jerry somebody. Some Jean Michel Jean Michel Jean who is a French electronic instrumental musician. Okay, well, what Tim said apparently <laughs> held one at the University of Moscow, which had three point five million people. Wow. Yeah. Um, when I actually got to go to a free concert, which was not Rod Stewart sadly, but I was so excited because it was. Um, it's called Fits in the Tantrums, and they're kind of a, I mean, I would say they're mildly popular, but they came for free to Brad for, or no, Virginia Tech, because uh, me and Tim live very closely to two major universities in the areas so of things like this happen occasionally. And the reason people knew them is they were the ones that were in that commercial, the I can make your head clap. That's them. That song. Da, 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 da. So that was known. And then a few of they kind of had that upbeat kind of punk meets poppy sounds that they've been used in a lot of tv shows and stuff but mm-hmm. i was a big fan from early 2000s so i went and unfortunately it was very evident that i was like first of all i wasn't i was like the only adult there because it was a bunch of call what felt like kids to me they were college kids but second of all none of them knew any of the songs they just went because it was free <laughs> so like i'm the only one going me and molly were like there was like two songs that were super popular because of tv shows and commercials so everybody knew those but outside of that you could just see that there was just a bunch of college students wondering what they were listening to <laughs> and it was free it was cool though because i mean their concerts usually can you know i mean 30 40 dollars a ticket it if you go to one of their major venues they just happen to come for free there you go i've uh, i've played lots of concerts in my time that i didn't get paid anything <laughs> so that's effectively a free concert <laughs> it was a free concert so you that's that's how tim is now keen to rod stewart <laughs> <laughs> and i can give you a rod stewart rock and roll fact rod stewart was discovered busking outside twickenham british rail station by jeff beck Huh. And Twi- and Twickenham British Rail. So I used to live in Twickenham, which yeah. is not which is not far from Hounslow for our uh, bingo card uh, followers in the audience. And um, it, there's a famous stadium there, which is a rugby stadium, and it's not far from Richmond, Surrey either. Yeah, it's, it's around the area where I grew up and all that kind of stuff. But yeah, he was busking there at, at Twickenham British Rail, Rail Station, and the guitarist Jeff Beck heard him and 
basically discovered him. Now the rest is history. There you go. Well, moving from the boss, we're going to move on to some boss ladies. It's okay. the Spice Girls. Um, you guys see what I did there? I was, that was good segue. Um, yeah, yeah, see yeah. what I did there? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so the Spice Girls wannabe is actually scientifically, I'm going to go into it, the catchiest song of all time which is probably not shocking to anybody. So in 2014, a group of researchers from the Museum of Science Industry in England released an online test called Hooked on Music. It contained 1,000 quips for popular hits, pop songs, etc. that went all the way back to the 1940s, and it asked 12,000 participants to identify the songs as fast as possible. They found Wannabe by the Spice Girls was the catchiest song. It was able to be recognized within about 2.3 seconds, which was way below the average of five seconds for most songs so given i used to play this game where you had to do that and i'm the kind of person it's like 0.5 seconds but they said that this was an average of people all ages all genders um all you know socioeconomic backgrounds like they did their due diligence and for some reason wannabe was the easiest one for them to recognize hmm. but did oh go ahead <laughs> I was going to say, you was talking about saying you can you reckon recognize songs from the intro in 0.5 seconds. Mm-hmm. I've played that game where people play me intros. Yeah. And I'm pretty good at it. Maybe we need an episode where we, I don't know, I, I have to work out the technology, but we need to beat the intro round. I thought about doing that. I've also thought about, there's a couple of different games I thought we could play, but I used to play, there was one on my phone that literally that was the whole game. And I mean, I was like ranked really high up there because I would just been there. But now that I'm thinking about, think about the intro to Wannabe. I mean, it's very distinct sounding, and I think the words start almost immediately, right? Yeah, like I think she like literally starts singing almost immediately. That could contribute to why it's so easy for people to pick up on versus maybe if it's just music. Yeah, because you guys, ah, tell me what you want. Like that's, that's pretty. Yeah. That's such a distinct opening that I think that could be a contributing factor. That's 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 true. Yeah, I mean, it is. It, I think not only is it catchy, it's a well-written pop song, but also it's everyone knows it because it was it was everywhere when it came out. So I think I think if you was going to give that test to somebody of whether to see if the song is catchy, you'd have to play it to someone who'd never heard it, and that would be very difficult. Yeah, I can agree with that. I think that to say that it's the catchiest song might not be the best way to label that. More of like the most easily. I don't know. Recognized song might be a better way of labeling that headline. I think that's a little. um... Anyway, so I just think that's a little kind of misleading. Now, Tim has hinted at this before. Finland has the most um, metal bands per capita. Um, So basically what they're saying is and actually Reddit, a Reddit user created a map from the Encyclopedia Metalums archive, which apparently is a thing for metal bands. Of the most bands, Finn is home to the most bands of the genre with five, 53.5 metal bands per 100,000 people. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Second place was um, two Nordic nations as well. It was um, Sweden and Norway. And then Iceland stole the third. So to put in perspective, um, heavy metal did it. it I guess it says it or, it ordinated, ordinated. That's not what I'm going to say. Originated. That's the word <laughs> um, in the United States and the UK. Um, and their countries were only 5.5 or 5.2 per capita. Hmm. So that's that's crazy. And I think you've hinted at this before. Do you know what makes Finnish people so um I guess I guess not Finnish people, people from Finland. So interested in metal, Tim, do you have any theories? Well, I think a lot of Scandinavia, because all those countries you mentioned, are all Scandinavian countries yeah. apart from Iceland. But the but but Iceland is very near to the uh, North Pole as well. So what you find is a lot of those countries are only populated in the south of the country. And then in the north mm. of the country, it's there's not much going on and it's incredibly, incredibly cold. And there's not 
there's not much happening. So they scream metal music happens, instead. <laughs> yeah, and I think what happens is you get populations of people who sit around bored and angry, <laughs> and then and then they, they make metal bands. I I mean that that is my understanding of how it works. I don't know if that's true, but that's my understanding. I mean that sounds valid. They're angry. It's cold. They can't go outside, and they probably are drinking alcohol. So yeah. that's where most metal is born. <laughs> Good theory. Good theory. Um, so that one I thought was interesting because Tim's talked about it a few times. So did you know that Britney Spears, her songs are used to scare off pirates by the British Navy? It doesn't surprise me because I've heard like in the Iraq war and other such Middle Eastern wars, they use metal music as a kind of defense tactic. And I know a lot of metal bands decided that they want they put like cease and desist orders with the US military because they said we do not want to be associated with this stuff you need to remove it so the way the British Navy uses it so basically they play Britney Spears songs to, um, to scare off Somali pirates um, off of Africa's eastern coast such as oops I did it again and baby one more time are popular the rationale is by playing these songs Somali pirates had a strong dislike for western culture and music so that's why Britney Spears songs were a perfect fit yeah, I mean, you know, if, you, if you're an artist, you're whether you're Britney Spears or Metallica or any band like that, I mean, whether the whether the cause that the government is doing is right or wrong, do you really want to be associated mm -hmm. with that? No. I've seen many artists um, do assist. I wouldn't, I would be like, no, I didn't ask for that. Let me get, let, you know what I mean? But to be fair, think about everything Britney Spears has been through here recently. She might not have had control over whether they could use her music or not. No, that's true. It, it was probably her dad uh, decided it was fine or just whatever, you know. Yes, because to be honest, her dad, and this is not going to be a shocking revelation. If it isn't, if you if you disagree with me, that's fine. Disagree with me. But her dad does need to be very money hungry. So if they if there was any way for him to be popular, even if it's the British Navy, I imagine he'd probably let it go. Exactly. Is um, I've read the stories. Is Britney truly free now? Yeah. Um, well, I think she's like 70 percent free. I think there's still some legal binding. But yes, yeah, slowly but surely she's getting there. Um, and her sister tried to release a book. Um, and basically, Brittany accused her sister of also being part of this conspiracy with her family. And, you know, basically said you did nothing and sit idly by. So her book tried to, like, give this her book to like or her her. Her book was going to go towards charity for mental health, and they refused the book after basically what Brittany said her sister did to her. Because I think the irony of letting that, you know what I mean, push mm -hmm. or something. So they didn't even do that. But yeah, I think she's like 70% free. I'd have to read all the details, but yeah, it's getting there. Part of the biggest landslide for her to actually be able to get as far as she had was them letting her pick her own lawyer. So previously she had a lawyer that was basically approved, I think by her father in some way, or maybe in the pocket of her father. I can't confirm or deny that, mm -hmm. but by getting her own lawyer, she's been able to start making choices and the lawyers been able to actually take it to court and get it backed up. Okay. So slowly but surely we free Brittany anyway. Yes. <laughs> and she's apparently not Somali pirates favorite. All Demia. right. <laughs> Okay, so another one was that I kept seeing it. It made me laugh. Barry Manilow didn't write the song called I Write the Songs. <laughs> now, that's funny because Barry Manilow is such a prolific songwriter. And in fact, he got his start writing commercials. Mm -hmm. Like doing like jingles and stuff is what I've heard. Yeah. But yeah, he did write the song called I Write the Songs. Also, though. Have you seen a picture of Barry Manilow recently? Yeah, Barry Manilow is an older gentleman. He's he's done very well for himself, and I'm sure he's uh, he has a lot of uh, money or, or enough money to be very comfortable. But he's done what a lot of people like that do, and they've spent it on work and work on work. his you know, on his face. Now, rather than just aging gracefully as a uh, as a gentleman in his 80s, 70s or 80s or however old he is, he's got this weird they, you know when they they do this thing where they stretch your face mm -hmm. out and they give you a facelift. And maybe you know maybe to his eye is exactly what he wanted and he's happy and his husband or partner is happy, but I don't know, it looks weird. 
the cheeks it's the cheeks that really get me and if you see like a side view his cheeks stick out much further than the rest of his face it's very interesting now i always wonder and this is just from a person who um finds you know who's been a singer in the past i feel like i would be nervous to get plastic surgery if i were a singer because anything that affects your mouth your nose your palate your chin you know what i mean kind of like how the famous thing about freddie mercury not wanting to fix its underbite um any of that seems like that would affect your ability to make your sound you you would think so i mean because freddie mercury said that his his mouth was his was his office and he wasn't going to mess with his office that was that was his uh that was his quote on that yeah, I don't know. I feel like as an artist, I would struggle with the idea of getting anything done to my sinuses or my nose or any of that, because that could really affect your voice. Um, but a bad example is Mariah Carey's had a lot of work done. And Lord knows her voice is um, taking a toll. Exactly. Well, I've, I obviously I've never ha- had any uh, cosmetic surgery done on my face for uh, for recreational really, reasons. Tim, I I thought so. <laughs> <laughs> but I can tell you, Gosh. when I was about seventeen or eighteen years old, I used to work at Superdrug in Hounslow High Street. This is a this is a full bingo <laughs> card episode, and they used to have these big. These big like cages on wheels. I think you used to call them skips or something. Anyway, the big cages on wheels that you had the stock came in. And I pulled yeah. this cage through a door and it was full of stuff. I think it was at Christmas actually. And I pulled it through. And as it came through, the side of my hand got caught between the skip mm-hmm. and the door. And it took a load of skin off my <sighs> knuckles and the back of my hand. Luckily, I don't have any scars, scars from it or anything. But as it was healing, it was on my left hand, which is my guitar, you know, guitar fingering hand. As it was healing, it was it was stretching the fingers back. So when I was playing guitar, it was actually uncomfortable because of the way the skin was falling. Now, if you're a singer and you're used to opening your mouth in a certain way and projecting Mm -hmm. in a certain way, like you say, if your faces all squished back, it wouldn't be weird. It would be very hard. I don't know. I just feel like if I had made my entire life, you know, music i don't know if i could take that risk but that's just my opinion and tim that sounded like you described the injury tonight and that made me cringe because ow. <laughs> anyway you, it was not it was not pleasant i do know that Oof. nope i'll i'll skip it um so the next one is kind of topical as we're going into november jingle bells was originally a thanksgiving song did you know that tim i, I did not know that Jingle Bells, the classic Christmas um, song, was written by James Lord Pierpont and published in 1857. It was meant to be sung during Thanksgiving. The song's original title, One Horse Open Sleigh, then it it was changed to Jingle Bells, um, and then it was reprinted in 1859. Uh, There's a plaque in Medford, Massachusetts, at the former site of the tavern where the song is said to have been written in an area where um, sleigh rides were popular. Would you, would you look at that? I suppose it does beg the question, what is the origin of a lot of these Christmas songs? Were they written, like the traditional ones, were they written as Christmas songs or do they have origins outside of that holiday? Well, that one that's like chestnuts roasting on an open fire, mm-hmm. there's really not anything specific to Christmas in it. No, that's true. So how would we even know? Or is it just songs that come out during that time and now we associate them with Christmas? I mean, obviously, if it's, you know... Christmas, we could see how it could be Christmas, but like if they say Christmas in it, you know what I mean, or anything of that nature. But outside of that, I guess there's probably a handful of them that maybe didn't start out that way. Yeah, and I think outside of traditional Christmas songs, I think it's since since there's been a, uh, a a singles chart or an album chart, it's it's effectively a cash grab because like you have your song and you make it Christmas and you put some sleigh bells in it and then you hope it's going to sell a lot. I mean, that makes sense. I guess, yeah. Well, and um, who knows what they were doing in 1857 in that tavern? No one will ever know. <laughs> and if, if any any descendants of those people uh, <laughs> listening to the show, we'd be happy to have you on and we can discuss what went down in that tavern. I mean, especially know. going into November, you'll be very topic on brand. We got this. All are. right. <laughs> so did you know Michael Jackson tried to buy Marvel Comics? No, I did not know that. So Michael Jackson so badly wanted to play Spider-Man in a movie that he attempted to buy Marvel Comics. The company that created and owned Spider-Man 
which, you know, we know that's Marvel. I don't know why I said it like that. Stanley's Marvel chairman up until his death in 2018 has recalled this story publicly. The comic legend said that they, he thought Jackson would have made a good Spider-Man. However, Lee felt that Jackson was not a very good businessman, which to Stanley's credit, Michael Jackson did lose a lot of money. Um, so he never thought it was a good thing to do and sell the rights. Yeah, I, I I get the impression that Michael Jackson, even in the height of his fame, was not a good custodian of his wealth. No. Because, cause you, you know, we, we discussed before about that Martin Bashir documentary. You know, we, mm -hmm. we've spoken about how that was, was not a good yeah. thing. But there's a scene in it when he's in Vegas and he's in the, um, in the shops in the Venetian. And there's a shop there that sells Fabergé eggs and tacky gold stuff and expensive gold statues and sort of high i think it's high-end collectibles is the word that i'm looking for and i've been in that shop and in fact that if you go in that shop they have a video playing of michael jackson in that very shop now when he in the martin Bashir documentary he goes into that shop the shop has been closed for him and he's walking around there and he's and he's just pointing to things saying yeah i want that one i want that i want that i want that one i want that one and that one and each one of those items is maybe fifty thousand dollars a hundred thousand dollars and i mean that's i mean i'm sure that wasn't just set up for the documentary i'm sure that's probably much how, how he how he led his life he, he you go anywhere you want you see a platinum plated piano and it's like yeah i'll have that two million yeah i'll have that that's just crazy and i mean to be fair, he did basically run out of money before he died. The Netherland branch was falling apart piece by piece. So Stanley may not have been off base based off of what you're saying and what I know about it. Yeah, mm -hmm. well, that, that was the whole thing about the This Is It concerts. He was going to do that um, mm -hmm. residency at the O2 in London. As I think it was, it was supposed to be AEG Live were bankrolling a load of stuff for him. Yeah. And that's why that's he was going to do a month residency or whatever it was. And they put so much money into that show. Like, did you watch the This Is It movie? Do you know, I've yet to see it. I've seen bits of it, but I've yet to see it. So the This Is It movie, I watched the movie and I have a book on it. Um, but basically there was so many pyrotechnics, like electronics, like big things. Like at one point, you know, um, in the song they don't really care about us where it's like skinhead and redhead everybody yeah that kind of kind of sounds like a marching thing mm -hmm. so at one point which that i think that i don't you probably know michael jackson has alternate music videos for that song too mm -hmm. um so depending on which one this will make sense depending on which one you've seen but there was gonna be like it looks like michael as like a soldier but they made hundreds of thousands of them and it was like a it made it look like it was um, they i guess they were um what are those things that like when the person's not really there, the one that my uh, prince did want people to do with him? What's the word I'm looking for? Hologram or avatar. Yeah, they were like a hologram, but it made it look like it was going to come. Like they showed it up on the screen and then the holograms come out and it literally looks like during that part about 10,000 Michael Jackson's and like kind of like one of his famous suit outfits with like the bullets or whatever, that black one mm -hmm. come into the audience and march throughout the audience. Like at one scene and I can't even visualize how much money that would have cost like, holy man, they put a lot of money into that concert. Another part was, and I talked about this, I think, on one of the other episodes, whenever they were doing the um, Smooth Criminal, he literally was up on the screen, in the screen, and they do, like, the whole backslide thing that he's famous for with the shoes or whatever, and then mm -hmm. there's a bunch of other Smooth Criminals, so they're in the outfits. He jumps out of the screen as they're on stage. Somehow, it makes it look like he's literally coming out of the screen on stage um, at the very end of the song. And I'm talking about like the biggest screen you've ever seen with all these power. It, I, if I had to guess, they it was in the millions at least to fund that. Unfortunately, they get to do it. But there were so many things going into play for that concert. Yeah. And do you want to know an interesting fun fact about about that? When they that? when they rehearsed it, they rehearsed it at the Staples Center in Los Angeles. And the reason they did that is that the Staples Center is the most acoustically perfect arena in the world. It was designed to be completely acoustically perfect for large events like that. And the mm -hmm. O2 Arena in London, which is based in the old Millennium Dome, um, is an exact copy of the Staples Center, which is why they they did all they rehearsed. They got the they, they got the Staples Center for a number of months to start rehearsals, and then they were going to move it to the O2. So they literally paid for a whole nother stage to <laughs> rehearse it. Is what I heard too. Dang. Yeah. Wow.
Yeah. Well, anyway, not to insult him. I love Michael Jackson. Um, I don't think everything he did was great. We talked about I just separate the music from the artists. But um, yeah, he. I don't think he was a great steward of music, but of music of money. <laughs> and like you said, <laughs> that was ironic. Um, and like you said, that last concert was supposed to kind of help resurrect that. But obviously that didn't work. Maybe resurrect wasn't the right term to use. Anyway, I'm just going to move along. I'm building myself a hole, digging it bigger. <laughs> All right, bye. <laughs> okay, so we're going to change it completely. Um, I had never heard this, but they say a sea organ, and I'm going to explain what that meant, is built into the coast of Croatia. So okay. after Zadar, Croatia suffered devastation in World War II. Uh, reconstruction includes transforming a part of the sea seacoast or the city seacoast into an unbroken, um, metonymous concrete wall. Completed in 2005, the sea organ is an architectural sound object which plays through tubes. Um, so basically, it's like tubes that are hit, and when it does, it sends sounds out through waves, like into the ocean. Um, the steps which offer both protection and allow tourists and locals a place to sit or stand while listening to the music they create um, that comes out through the water. Well, that's kind of cool. It must be just the way that the water comes in and it hits the pipes or however mm-hmm. they've they've done it. That because I mean that that's like a um, that's like a, a water version of wind chimes, basically. Yeah, that's the way it sounds because it sounds like the sound, the, the noise comes out through the ocean, but as the sea waves come in, it's hitting these things and then it comes out through these tubes. Um, and so it's a big tourist spot, obviously. And I think Croatia has probably became more popular in recent years um, as a tourist destination. But they said that you can just sit there and listen to the music play, which I think is pretty cool. Well, that's uh, that, 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 that's pretty cool. I've never been to Croatia, though, so... Neither have I, but I would like to go. Um, I think it's becoming more and more popular as a destination spot. Of course, was Croatia the one where all those people kept getting kidnapped? I, I like, don't a know. Few I, years I, I, back. I mean, I don't know a great deal about Croatia, but I think in its past, it's had some less than great times. I feel like a few years back there, there was something about tourists being kidnapped, but I can't remember if that was Croatia. If it wasn't, I'm sorry. If you listen to us from Croatia, I'm sure you're beautiful. All right. Um, (laughs) It's just something I kind of remember. So this one is going to come as no shock to you, Tim, and probably to none of the members of Freak Jam. Loud music causes you to drink more in less time. (laughs) So in 2008, a French study found that loud music in bar setting leads to more drinking. Um, research was conducted in bars with 40 males, 18 to 25 years old, who were unaware that they were being observed. Only those who ordered a draft beer were included, and with permission from bar owners, the researchers would manipulate the music sounds um, before choosing to participate. Results proved that the higher the sound or the louder the sound, the amount of drinking increased in a certain amount of time. Well, you know, you're cranking the tunes up, you're with your friends and you go to the bar and you're having a great time and then the song you like comes on and then you're singing along and then you have another drink. I mean, I don't think you really need a French study for that. I mean, you know, 15 minutes in Mr. Bumbles would have told you that. I was going to say, or 15 minutes hanging out with me sometimes could have told you that. (laughs) (laughs) Just saying, like, I I have been, I'm notorious for what music gets loud. That is what I want to drink. Now, it could be a stimulation thing if you want to get down to the science behind it, but I don't really feel like we needed a study to tell us that. Um, And all the gigs Tim's played in his day, I'm sure he's seen that in full effect. I've I've seen lots of drinking, lots of debauchery, lots of things I would not discuss on this family podcast. And I will tell (laughs) you, I've played all kinds of gigs in my career. I've played pubs in the UK. I've played events in the UK. um, I've played all all kinds of things. Uh, But I play for bikers, play for Hells Angels, biker community. I've done that too. And I've done all the same kind of things since I've lived here. I've played bars and I've played private events and what have you. The most shenanigans and the most debauchery that I've ever observed at any gigs (laughs) goes on in Southwest Virginia Moose Lodges. (laughs) (laughs) Which is the uh, Southwest Virginia equivalent of those places that do the meat raffles in UK. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's almost like an equivalent of the British Legion Club for our UK listeners. I've seen things I wish I could unsee. I've seen people dancing on the bar. I've seen more fights break out. I've seen more. Oh, I've just seen things. I'm not going to go into it, but (laughs) 
All of that oh, has happened in Southwest Virginia Moose Lodges more than any biker gig or rowdy UK East End pub or anything I ever saw in the UK. It's all happened at the Moose Lodges around here. And since I do live in Southwest Virginia and I'm, I mean, I was born in Florida, but I generally grew up in this area. I can't say that I'm surprised. (laughs) (laughs) Heck, I probably know some of the people that were in the Moose Lodges. (laughs) That's not shocking at all. Well, Tim, you and your loud music's making all them get so drunk. Anyway, so (laughs) (laughs) you're to blame, Tim. It's your fault. All right. So Axel Rose changing gigs gears here smoke cigarettes as a part-time gig so here's what happened while guns and roses were struggling to make an impact on the hollywood music scene in the mid-1980s axel rose held some interesting jobs including the position of night manager at tower records located on sunset boulevard he and his bandmate izzy straden also participated in a scientific study at ucla where they were smoked cigarettes for wages for eight dollars per hour yeah, I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of clinical studies around for doing all kinds of things. And I suppose if Izzy Stradlin and Axel Rose are both smokers, it's like, well, we're just going to go smoke some cigarettes. And it's just like business as usual, I suppose. I mean, I feel like I would do the same if I were a smoker. I might as well make some money off of it, right? Exactly. I mean, I know there's there's all kinds of things that you can get wrapped up in clinical studies for. Yeah, I mean, I know I always saw one where they do your wisdom teeth and they give you a placebo. Some of them get placebos and some of them get the real pain medicine to see how people react after the wisdom teeth. And I debated on doing that when I got my wisdom teeth out. I was like, well, because I had my wisdom teeth out, what, two years ago now? It's like, if I'm going to have to get the teeth ripped out of my face, I might as well make some money off of it, right? But then I never fell through with it because I kind of forgot where the what the study was to look it up at the time. <laughs> but I, I kept can, thinking. I was going to say I can give you a fun fact. I only have one wisdom tooth. It's never been removed, and it's so deeply in my jaw. There's no point in ever removing it. So I had four. This Tim knows this because I was working with him whenever I did this. That I was having um, some medical issues, and part of it is I have arthritis in my jaw. And so my wisdom teeth are, were impacted. So they were all sideways. Some of them were pushing out. Some of them were deep in there. But because of the arthritis, they had to remove all of them. And I had to go completely under. And there's some very, maybe if I'm feeling like giving everybody a laugh, I'll post a very funny photo of me right after I got my wisdom teeth on Instagram. <laughs> Not related to music, but it does give you a good laugh. All right. So, yes, moral story is I probably would do it if I were a smoker, too. So it's not there really that surprising. <laughs> So the I didn't know this, the Offspring, which is one of my favorite bands, first band, their first drummer left the band to become a gynecologist, which we're not going to go into that. But it was just random that he left the band after three years and decided he just wanted to become a doctor. Hmm. I mean, well, well, I mean, I suppose, I mean, were the Offspring as famous as they are now or were they peak Offspring when he left the band? I would say it was mid-1980s, so that was kind of probably at the start of their career. Because weirdly enough, what people don't know is the Offsprings had, like, a very long-spanding career. Like, they started in the early, like, I mean, mid to late 80s, and they spent, I think they had tracks out in 2000. But I would say this is probably at the very beginning of that. Yeah, I mean, I can I can see that, because, you know, you're a young band, you've played the various circuits where you live. Maybe you've got a little bit of record company interests. You maybe even cut your first EP album, something like that. You've had a little bit of traction in in it. And I mean, unless you're a superstar or you're a session player, as we've discussed before, there's not a lot of money in music, even Mm -hmm. in the days when, you know, people were selling lots of records and making lots of money out of it. There's not, there wasn't a lot of money to be made. And if that guy had a, um, had a thing where he always wanted to be a doctor and he was doing the music thing and going along and it didn't give him the instant fame and fortune he, he wanted. He was like, well, actually, guys, I'm, I've got, I'm always, almost halfway through this college thing to become a doctor. I'm just going to finish it and I'm going to be a doctor. Exactly. And to put in perspective, one of the um, 
the the little things one of the facts that i came across was you're talking about that there's not a there's not a lot of money to be had for artists nowadays so spotify play um, the average amount of money somebody gets for a stream on spotify it's about 0.003 cents to 0.0008 for per stream with the average payout being per stream 0.004. So if you think about it, as you've talked about streaming music leaves a lot where the artists don't get a lot of money nowadays, they have to go through so many other avenues to make money, um, which is why you see kiss caskets and uh, queen water bottles and whatever. <laughs> um, but also um, it basically can be generally it says singers receive the same or a comparable per song rate as other musicians performing on the track. Generally, anywhere from $50 to $300 per song is earned. Um, and then from that, it just depends on how the song sells. So like you said, there's not a lot of money to be had. And if you're very fresh and new, maybe being a doctor sounds more lucrative. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the thing is with streaming, I mean, those rates are no good. You know, if you're a creative person, if you've worked on your art and you, you have an album, a single, a song mm -hmm. or whatever, and then you present it to the world and you're basically giving it away for free and you're not earning anything. And that's, that's not a good thing if you're a creative person at all. I mean, I'm, I, I have a number of tracks I've worked on. I have co-writes on that are up on Spotify and I've never seen a penny from it and I probably never, ever will. However, the cat is out of the bag with sharing music online and in the era prior to that it was napster and it was grokster and edonk and all that kind mm -hmm. of stuff where people were ripping the cd they're ripping the cds that they probably got for free from columbia house they're ripping them into their computer and then they're sharing them on those networks and people are downloading them for nothing and nobody anywhere was making any money out of that i mean let's all. be honest i i had my fair share of kazaa and bear share and all the likes Myself. Yeah, I mean, we all did. Everybody did. It was it was just a thing that everyone was doing at the time. Mm -hmm. But you know that that is you can't take that away. That thing has happened, and if streaming wasn't out there, it would go back to that kind of model. And so, that is a good point. So, as much as I think that the artist should be compensated better significantly better especially when spotify and amazon music and apple music are probably making billions of dollars really mm -hmm. um what what's the, what's the other option i mean i mean i i'm in the minority i buy physical music i don't buy records so much anymore i buy lots of cds but in fact most of them are used so nobody's making any extra money out of it but anyhow i'm a i'm a collector <laughs> of physical physical music because i like it i used to have a huge great big cd collection and I'm kind of re-embracing something I enjoyed from the past. Some people would call it midlife crisis, but I call it re-embracing <laughs> things from the past. Just saying. So, <laughs> I'm nice segue in, there. Yeah, I'm in the minority there, but most people are not doing that. Some yeah, there's some record collectors out there, and people mm -hmm. have got back into that world. But it's 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 more niche than the industry would make out. And they say, oh, yes, all of our record plants, they're at 100% capacity and we can't keep up and what have you. But you look at the figures, I mean, it no. in the grand <laughs> scheme, it's, you know, if if if, if the, the music market is 100%, 97% is streaming and 3% is people buying records. I can agree with that. And I think you're right. You make a valid point. Like if it wasn't for streaming, where would we be? I agree with that statement. Makes sense. All right. So we're going to talk about something we've kind of hinted on before, but we've never knew a number. Prince played 27 instruments on his debut album. 27. Yeah. He, um, not only did he play 27 instruments on his album, he was a virtuoso musician on probably all of them. So on this particular album, so Prince's debut album for you was um, released when he was just 20 years old and he played 27 albums um, in the album's notes. He is listed as the mu musician behind all vocals, as well as a deep breath, <laughs> which I thought was funny. <laughs> um, guitar, electric guitar, acoustic guitar, bass, bass synth, singing bass, fuzz bass, electric piano, acoustic piano, a mini Mog. I don't even know what that is. A, a mini, a mini Moog is a, is a synthesizer. Okay, fine. Polly Moog, that's Tim just corrected me. <laughs> an ARP string ensemble, an ARP pro solist, some type of, O-B, oh God, I don't even know. O-B-E-R-H-E-I-M, four voice. 
um, drum syndromes, water drums, slapsticks, bongos, congas, a finger cymbal, wind chimes, orchestra bells, wind blocks or wood blocks. I'm sorry. A bush trap, a tree bell, hand claps and finger snaps. That's all he's credited for. Yeah, I mean, that's 27 things, but it's, I mean, I'm not taking it away from Prince, but that's about seven <laughs> types of instruments. As I, mean, I was to say, yeah, it's not necessarily all different types of instruments. Yeah, like you could like, throw like a mini Moog and a something Moog and an Oberheim synthesizer and a piano like and a Fender Rhodes. Five types of drums. Yeah, and a keyboard. I mean, they're all keyboards. They sound different, but they're all keyboards. I mean, from that I got, he played keyboards, drums, bass mm-hmm. and guitar and, and percussion. Yeah, and I mean, like, the last two were hand claps and finger snaps. So take that in perspective. But (laughs) to be fair, that still is a lot. And to do it all yourself for your debut album at 20 years old is pretty good. Oh, I mean, Prince was an absolute musical genius whose music spanned various genres. He produced it. He wrote it. He performed it. And And he wrote for so many other artists. Yeah, and I mean, he, he he never really worked with other people. I mean, it was just like written by Prince, performed by Prince, produced by Prince. It's like he's creating this this music in a vacuum. It's like Paul McCartney. It's just like creates this music and it's just in him and he just, I yeah, don't know. And, yeah, it just kind of bleeds out. And that's the weird thing about it is, is I feel like, you know, we kind of joke about like Madonna. She is Madonna. Like she's produced this kind of world around her that makes her Madonna. That's not just her musical. Prince did that in a different way, but his was more of how good a musician he was just affected your opinion of him and everything. Like he built that kind of, he is Prince, you know, that, that there it's like almost like the machine that is Prince. I don't even know how to explain it. Like everything he did was so odd-branded, so perfect and so iconic that like in my mind, he can do no wrong. Sure. And then I, I think the difference between Prince and Madonna, Prince was, was a musician first and foremost and mm-hmm. a songwriter and a producer first and foremost. However, yes, he owned the Prince brand and understood the theater of rock and roll. And he understood the mystery of being a a media entity. He he he, un- yeah. he understood how that world worked and embraced it and created the Prince persona. But I think first and foremost, he was a, a musician. And I can agree with that. And that's yeah, what Ma- made the difference. Yeah, Madonna. Madonna is owner of the the Madonna brand. She created the Madonna band. She got better at singing as it went along. And I think mm-hmm. her, the songs that she was she wrote and got involved with got better as she went along. However, a lot of her iconic songs are not written by her. And yeah, I mean, yeah. I, Madonna's a good musician. I mean, she, you know, you can't take anything away from Madonna and everything that's created, but that would be the difference between the two, in my opinion. And I think so. And I think that's why he's more larger to life to me. And just overall, like, I just... I just it just blows my mind. So if you ever watched a concert, if you've never watched a Prince concert, which I'm sure Tim has. But if any of our listeners have never just taken the time to go on YouTube and watch a Prince concert, do it. It's crazy how mind blowingly talented he was. Um, anyway, so this is just really random and not related to any particular artist. But I just thought it was interesting. Morocco's army is smaller than it's more. Um, it's it's military orchestra. I don't know why words are so hard for me today. Actually, I do, guys. I've been sick this week, so I'm kind of dealing with that while I'm trying to talk. But that's neither here nor there. I'm going to live. Um, <laughs> but yeah, their army is smaller than their orchestra. So the Moroccan army has 82 soldiers and its military orchestra has 85 musicians. And it is the only country in the world whose army is smaller than their orchestra. Hmm. But I bet you if it all kicks off in Morocco, I bet the uh, the musicians will probably join forces with the regular army. I would imagine that they know how to do army stuff. (laughs) 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 For lack of a better way of saying it, I can't surmise that they wouldn't. (laughs) (laughs) Though I could be wrong, but I, I would think so. Um. So this one's for Tim and I've got a few more we'll hit on and then I think we'll be there. But this one's for you. Did you know Leo Fender, the founder of the iconic electric guitar and bass brand? Shocking. Um, And rock and roll fame inductee never learned how to play either instrument. I did know that. Yes. Leo Leo Fender was famously an engineer. I think he was he was a veteran from the Air Force. And he applied a lot of manufacturing techniques into the world of the electric guitar um because like gibson guitars are like violins or cellos they're they're 
have have the curves and the arch top and a glued in neck mm-hmm. and, they're, and they're very much like a traditionally made guitar like like a traditional like i said violin or cello yeah was. kind of what well, you see when you visualize that yeah yeah and then what leo fender did is he he looked into how to make these mass produce these things and make them cheaper for average musicians so like a fender guitar if you break it down really it's two slabs of wood screwed together. I mean, it's, hmm. it's more complicated than that, but the neck is one piece, the body is one piece, there's four wood screws and it goes together and everything just comes off and can be replaced and it's very easy. But yeah, he, he came from it from a different angle, whereas like the Gibson people and Les Paul, who worked with Gibson and Epiphone, were musicians first and foremost. He was an engineer, so he, he, he applied his engineering skills to the manufacture of a guitar. But yeah, you're completely correct. He couldn't play a note. Well, and I think that that goes to that. Some of it is like um, it's it's almost a science, like it's a mechanics or a mathematical type thing that goes into building stuff like that. Um, I feel like sometimes people forget that that when they're thinking of music, I feel like it's all strictly creative. But even music itself has time signatures. It counts. It's very structured. And so I can imagine how somebody who has a mind like that could make guitars or anything really um, without actually being able to play them. It's just ironic. I figured you probably knew. I thought I would mention it. So this one's one that we've brought up a few times, but we never knew the actual number. In the U.S. in 2005, vinyl records sold, sold, I'm like doing tongue twisters over here, (laughs) only reached 35 million. In 2015, because Sims said that now it's become the thing new, it went, it expanded to 416 million in sales in just 2015. And I imagine it's higher now in 2021. Now, when you say that figure, is that units sold or the dollar amount sold? I, it is it's dollar amounts so okay. it's the actual dollar amount well so yes more people are buying records not as i said it's not as super popular as they make out but yes people more people are buying records however have you seen how much brand new vinyl records cost exactly that's what i was gonna say they've skyrocketed every single one's like 30 dollars a piece Oh, I hit yeah, the table, Yeah, it's fine. Ladies and gentlemen, I sometimes edit out when Joy does <laughs> on the table. But tonight, but tonight, I'm feeling loose and free. And there you are. You've got a bonk on the table from Joy. <laughs> Please just name this episode Joy Hit the Table. Yeah. So if you guys don't know this, I get a little... Um, um, animated when I talk and I like to bang on the table. <laughs> it's a problem. Anyway, all right. So anyhow, vinyl, let me let me finish with vinyl records. So, <laughs> so when when vinyl became a big thing again, probably to twenty, I don't know, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen. When it when it started becoming a big thing again, certainly in US dollars, you go on Amazon and a vinyl record was maybe fifteen bucks, twenty maybe if it was a double. Mm-hmm. And now, if you go on Amazon for a single vinyl record, you're probably looking at $30. And then if you go, so there's like a double. And it's very it's very common now that a classic album is repressed as a double album set because if you put less tracks on a side, it sounds better. You're looking at $49.50. Bucks. I ordered the latest Joe Bonamassa album, Time Clocks. It hasn't come out yet. And I bought the CD because I'm in my CD world. I'm embracing 1982 like it's the time to be alive. And I paid $14.99 for it. I just had a curiosity. Process crisis yeah. over here. Yeah. I just had curiosity looked how much the vinyl was. It was 43 bucks. Mm-hmm. And if you go into a Barnes & Noble, you know, sneak over to the vinyl section, every single one of them are anywhere from 30 to $40. Like it's outrageous. I actually have bought a few on eBay. Like I bought some recently some Pink Floyd and some Rolling Stones, but I bought them the original um, prints like secondhand on eBay because they were much cheaper than if I got anything in person. Um, but yeah, outrageous. And apparently I think you're right on the money because it says 2015 is when that number I quoted a minute ago was from. So that's probably right about the right time frame. All right, Tim, this is just really funny. So I want to say it. And ironically, since I'm in my mouth is dry and I'm having sinus problems, this is going to be really hard for me to say, but <laughs> I'm going to do it anyway. Sorry in advance. Um, the longest song title ever is Hoagie Carmichael's 1943 song. And this is the title. I'm a cranky old yank and a cranky old tank on the streets of Yamaha with my Honolulu mama doing the Beto, 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 all by Cito, Burrito Blues. I mean, 
It's not the catchiest title I've ever heard. <laughs> but it's a very descriptive title. It tells you what I think the song is about. I mean... Yeah, I mean, Running With The Devil's pretty straightforward. <laughs> okay, yeah. I mean, that was a little bit more... <laughs> straightforward, you're right. You're right. Okay, I'll give you that. But yes, that was... I mean, it was 1943. It was a different time, Tim. Who were we to judge Mr. Carmichael's... Um, his song titles <laughs> <laughs> all right so i'm gonna leave you with this well i'll probably do two more but this one's a big one and tim's probably well aware of this one um where did it disappear to it's a beatles one and it's freddie mercury one. Oh, there it is uh in bohemian rhapsody freddie mercury plays on the same piano used by paul mccartney and hey jude did you know that tim I didn't know that. It was probably at Rockfield Studios, which is where it was, it was recorded. So it was probably a, it was probably a house piano that they had in the studio. Yeah, you imagine how many instruments, like the same instruments, been used on multiple, like, um, you know, like house, like you're saying, like a house band or a house studio, or something. It's probably one instrument that's been used on like seventy four hits, if we just don't know it. Yeah, because I mean, I, I've recorded in commercial studios and often you go in and they have a drum kit, which is mic'd and, you know, all the rattles have been got rid of. So, you know, it's going to sound good when it's recorded. And often you will have a piano in the studio, which is set up the same way, which is mic'd and make sure that there's no, nothing like rattles or cr mm. creaks or anything coming off it. And in addition, often studios will have guitar amplifiers and even guitars available for you to use. So like if you're a Fender guy and you get, you, the sound's not happening and you want to get a Gibson sound, there'll be a Les Paul on the wall that you can pull off and do that kind of stuff. So, so yeah, if you think like a, a working studio like Rockfield, which is the mm -hmm. same where um, Bohemian Rhapsody and the Night of the Opera was recorded, I mean, that they, it didn't just appear for them. I mean, that had been there for yeah. years and there was people way after the fact that used it. So, yeah, I never really thought of that, but it doesn't surprise me. No, and I mean, I guess that's what I was thinking more of. I was more interested to think about how often that happens and we probably don't realize it. You know, it's one of those things. All right, Tim, did you ever watch The Simpsons or have you ever watched The Simpsons? Yes. So when The Simpsons first came out, it came out on, in England and it showed on Sky TV. And Sky TV was the first real multi-channel TV that anybody had in England. Like some people had cable maybe in the late 80s, but it wasn't really a thing. Most people just had regular four terrestrial channels. And mm -hmm. then Sky TV came out and you, they sold a very cheap satellite dish and a very cheap receiver and everybody had them. And then like their program on the Sky Channel, as it was known, which launched it was The Simpsons. And I watched oh. The Simpsons for the first five, six years of it. And then I sort of got bored of it. And then I tried to revisit it a number of years ago. And the problem is it makes cultural references to films and TV and stuff <laughs> that I have no interest in. I don't know what it's going on about. So I, I just can't relate to it anymore. <laughs> okay. So the fact about the Simpsons, now that we got that history is the song do the Bartman was written by Michael Jackson. So here's the story in the early 1990s, during the heyday of the Simpsons popularity, the people behind the show decided it was time for the cartoon to start turning out music, blah, blah, blah. Uh, do the Bartman was one of them. There were rumors that, the track was ghost written by michael jackson who is a huge super fan of the simpsons but the show's producers denied it it wasn't until many years later they finally admitted that it was jackson who co-wrote the song uh, but he had done it in secret as he was contractually forbidden from writing outside of his label i didn't know that and i think he does backing vocals on it as well because nancy cartwright who voices bart simpson is the vocal all the way through but mm -hmm. there is like a backing vocal part in it and i heard that that was michael jackson too hmm. i and, mean that would make sense yeah and there is a simpsons episode where lisa befriends a homeless person yeah who, who speaks in a michael jackson voice and there was some discussion at the time whether it was michael jackson or a sound alike and i think it actually was michael jackson that's when it came out well, it sounds like that he wasn't contractually allowed to do that, but he was doing it on the sly um, and they were just didn't admit it for years later. Yeah, I think that's what it probably was. All right. So we've talked about this and this is be the this is where I leave them, Tim. You've hinted about born in the USA isn't pro-American. Well, it's not so much that it's not pro-American. It's a it's a very dark song. 
Well, it's specifically about his anger towards the country's treatment of Vietnam vets. Um, so I guess pro-American isn't necessarily the right way to say it. Um, but they say, you think all the young men and women that died in Vietnam, how many died since they've been back? You have to think that at that time, the country took advantage of their selflessness. Um, he says the song was misinterpreted by many and even President Reagan. You were talking about this earlier. used it in his reelection campaign, which Bruce Priesting did not like. So you were talking about people taking music's artists. And then so he wrote a cease and assist and tried to get it pulled but i guess it never pulled through so that's why it's associated i think with usa is because ray used it in his campaign yeah i mean like, there is a demo version of born in the usa which is in a minor key with him just playing it on acoustic guitar and it completely fits the lyric because it's about like you say a vietnam veteran coming back to his hometown and really you can't find a job nobody wants to know him and that, that's that's essentially what it's about um, however, some producer somewhere along the line put it in a major key, put that key, that synthesizer line in it, and it became the well, the chorus of it became this great yeah America ac- um, anthem. But it's not. That's not what the song's about. Yeah. So I just thought that was interesting. And this is where this is my last fact, Tim. And this is for all of our listeners who obviously love music if they're listening to this, or they just like to hear us go range and random tangents. That's up for debate because the <laughs> podcast is 40 percent music, 60 percent us saying random things. But music is good physically for your heart. So a study conducted at the University of something in Italy, I'm not going to try to say it, showed that music promotes a healthier cardiovascular system by triggering physiological changes that modulate your blood pressure, your heart rate, and your respiratory functions. Researchers found that rich classical musical phrase lasting 10 seconds long um, caused the heart rate and other parts of the cardiovascular system to synchronize with the music being played. Um, they're improving their muscular health. Well, music muscle, like your heart is a muscle, so your muscular health. So there you go, Tim. You're providing you by doing the music that you do are helping people's health. Well, would you would you look at that? I'm keeping people healthy. And do you know what also keeps people healthy? <laughs> What's that? Listening to podcasts that talk about music. (laughs) (laughs) We haven't done a study on it, but if you would like to do one and use our podcast, just let us know. (laughs) Well, laughter. If our podcast makes you laugh, they have said laughter affects your health. There there we go. And I I hope you hope you laugh along with us. (laughs) Yes. And with that, I will let you go. But we hope you guys continue to laugh along with us. Bye. See you later. Bye bye. 